Welcome to the History of the World podcast. My name is Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 2, The Ancient World. This is Episode 20, Ancient Egypt, A Summary. So now it is time to go back over the history of ancient Egypt and confirm what we have learned and fill in the gaps. This podcast introduced the history of Egypt way back in Volume 1, Episode 23. People didn't just suddenly appear in Egypt 5,000 years ago. Societies had been developing on the banks of the Nile and whichever grounds were fertile around the Nile for thousands of years before this too. So in terms of their personal development, the people of 3000 BCE who lived on the banks of the Nile had already developed a number of skills. Apart from the expected stone tools, the pre-dynastic Egyptians were skilled with pottery and textiles. They produced faience, which can be described as an early form of glass. They constructed their boats using the sewn plank technique, which is exactly what it says it is. Wooden planks sewn together using plant fibres. The Egyptians had developed their own style of hieroglyphic writing and had developed their own standard weight and length measuring techniques. Many cities along the banks of the Nile had already been established by the time Pharaoh Menes united the country of Egypt and the first dynasty began. This would start a period of three to four hundred years, which we like to refer to as the early dynastic period. During the second dynasty, Memphis was established as the capital of the new united Egypt, and significant tomb building emerged in the form of the blocks-shaped mastabas. The Old Kingdom It appears that by the 27th century BCE that the Egyptian kingdom continued its rise to greatness. The Third Dynasty brought stability to the kingdom. There are many cases where we struggle to devise an accurate list of pharaohs for the ancient Egyptian history and this is due to the amount of sources and the amount of different names that each pharaoh may have had. We have contemporary king lists inscribed on monuments. We have tablets and papyri created during later dynasties that refer to older dynasties. We have the works of the Ptolemaic Egyptian historian called Manetho, compiled in the 3rd century BCE. We may see Hellenised names of pharaohs in the same way that we see Hellenised names of cities. So it's all very confusing. We're not really sure exactly who the first pharaoh of this stabilising 3rd dynasty was, But we do know that the Third Dynasty ushered in an era of more powerful pharaohs which instigated the start of what would retrospectively be labelled by Egyptologists as the Old Kingdom of Egypt. Some sources tell us that Sanacht was the first pharaoh. Some others tell us that Djoser was the first Joseph is certainly the most well known of these early pharaohs purely on the basis of the fact that he was the man who commissioned the first pyramid when the step pyramid of Joseph was built. The following century, the fourth dynasty pharaohs would take this to the extreme. A site at Giza was developed with the construction of three huge pyramids as the centrepiece, each one devoted to a different pharaoh. The incredible and iconic sculpture of the Great Sphinx is also something of considerable significance at this site too. 
The Sphinx could be sculpted in the image of the pharaoh Khafre, to whom we believe one of the pyramids were too. The other two large pyramids are for the pharaohs called Menkauri and Khufu. While we're on the subject of Khufu, he is an excellent example of a pharaoh with too many names. The ancient Greek historian Herodotus called him Cheops. Manetho called him Sufis. Marrying all of this information together has been a difficult job for historians. The fact that there was all of this incredible construction work going on in Egypt points us towards a period of success and affluence. We can see advances in things such as the sewn plank boats. We can establish that boats were being fitted with tillers to their rudders to make steering easier and the facility for oarsmen to propel the boat through the waters sitting on both sides. The Egyptians would enjoy their successful trade and wealth unchallenged for many hundreds of years but this period also demonstrates that you don't need to be invaded by foreign peoples in order to hit a period of decline. The 6th dynasty pharaoh Pepi II ruled during the 23rd century BCE and during his reign there appears to be a decline in centralised power and an increase in the power of the gnomes, which were the political regions of Egypt run by nomarchs. What caused the nomarchs to be more challenging of central authority? Well, it seems that conditions were starting to be less favourable in Egypt. The annual flooding of the Nile seems to have declined over the course of a few decades, causing a lack of irrigation and a subsequent failure of agriculture that caused famine and internal unrest leading to violent exchanges. This ultimately led to the collapse of the Egyptian Old Kingdom and the beginning of the First Intermediate Period. The Middle Kingdom The disunity of Egypt meant that the Kerma culture of Nubia was able to evolve unhindered. The Kerma culture was a precursor to what would later become the Kingdom of Kush, which would play a significant part in Egyptian history. However, it would not be long before somebody would step up and do something about the Egyptian situation. Nebepetri Mentehotep of Thebes would defeat his rival nomarchs and reign over a reunited Egypt as Mentehotep II. Mentehotep would also curb the ambitions of the Nubians. The Middle Kingdom period was underway. Mentehotep II was of the 11th dynasty, which would rather naturally be succeeded by the 12th dynasty, with their first pharaoh, Amenemhat I. Egypt had recovered from the troubles that caused the instability of the first intermediate period. A new capital city was established at Ichtawi, and the good work of restabilising Egypt was continued with Amenemhat I's son and co-regent, Senesret I. Senesret would establish a southern border at the second cataract of the Nile, pushing the Nubians back into their heartlands. It would be during the 17th century BCE that the Middle Kingdom would come under threat, with the main cause being the migration of the Hyksos people into Lower Egypt. We don't know a great deal about the Hyksos, other than they spoke a Semitic language and migrated from the Asiatic lands of the Levant. They introduced chariots to Egypt for the first time and set up a capital city at the delta city of Avaris. This period also strangely marks the time of some other significant advances. Glass production seems to increase throughout Egypt and the Near East. A form of proto-Sinaitic script emerges in the Sinai Peninsula, which seems to derive from Egyptian script and would lead to the significant Phoenician alphabet. Various papyri seem to point towards advances in academia, such as the Rind Mathematical Papyrus, the Edwin Smith Papyrus, 
which talks of human anatomy, and the Ebers papyrus, which talks of medical conditions. The New Kingdom The Theban king from Upper Egypt, Amos I, was responsible for expelling the Hyksos dynasty from Lower Egypt. Egypt would once again be united as one, and we refer to this period as the New Kingdom. Military operations would be conducted out of Memphis, near the Delta, whereas Thebes would act as the ceremonial and religious capital of the kingdom. It would be near Thebes that the famous Valley of the Kings would become the new burial place for pharaohs. We also see significant temples being built, such as the Karnak Temple Complex and the Mortuary Temple of Queen Hatshepsut. Queen Hatshepsut was a member of the 18th dynasty, sometimes referred to as the Thutmosid dynasty of Egypt. This was another period of wealth for Egypt. While Queen Hatshepsut was looking after the governance of the country, her nephew and the pharaoh-in-waiting, Thutmose III, would be looking outwards in a military fashion. The lands of the Levant were being contested for by the Mitanni and the Hittites, but the biggest military legacy of Thutmose III was the Battle of Megiddo, which was an uprising of a coalition of local rulers against the Egyptians themselves. Thutmose III outwitted the Levantine coalition and would drive Egypt to its greatest geographical extent in the Asiatic lands. After this period of success, one of the pharaohs to come to lead the Egyptian new kingdom was called Amenhotep IV. Amenhotep IV would achieve fame not for military campaigns, but for trying to alter the entire religious position of the kingdom. He would try to get the people of Egypt to worship the sun disk, called Aten, exclusively. Something that went totally against the polytheistic centuries-old tradition of Egypt. He would also change his own name to Aten and move the capital to Elamana. It would be his own son, the boy king Tutankhamun, who would have to undo all of the problems caused by the aforementioned Amarna period. It did the kingdom no favours to have a king who was more concerned about the religious direction of the kingdom than its political situation. Tutankhamun would abolish Artanism and revert back to polytheism. Tutankhamun would do these things to the celebration of his countrymen, but he would not live beyond his teenage years. He has since become a figure of great interest in the modern age, thanks to how amazingly intact his tomb was when discovered in 1922. Mummification techniques had advanced to a highly skilled level by this time. The kingdom really didn't feel like it had fully recovered from this blip in the New Kingdom narrative until the emergence of the 19th dynasty. At the beginning of the 13th century BCE, the pharaoh Seti I would make a positive impact on reasserting Egyptian authority in Levantine lands. This work would be continued by his son, Ramesses II, who would battle the Hittites at the Battle of Kadesh in 1274 BCE. Although the Egyptians were caught out by the Hittites and failed in their attempt to take the city of Kadesh, they had still sent a valuable message to the Hittites that the Egyptians should not be taken for granted. In the aftermath, the Hittites and the Egyptians agreed to a peace treaty that would establish a strong political understanding between the two nations, and this was necessary when considering the growing might of their Near East neighbour, the Assyrian Empire. However, the political situation would take an unexpected turn after the lifetime of Ramesses II. The Hittite Empire would mysteriously disappear sometime around the year 1200 BCE, but neither the Assyrians nor the Egyptians appeared to capitalise on this. This seems to point towards an international problem which is contemporary to what historians describe as the Late Bronze Age Collapse. 
internal unrest rose up in Egypt again, as it had done before during hard times. And the man regarded as the last great pharaoh of the new kingdom, Ramesses III, tried in vain to stabilise the Egyptian kingdom during the 12th century BCE. His death in 1153 BCE could have been the result of a conspiracy within his court. And after his death, there was a procession of short reigns while the new kingdom weakened and eventually fragmented. The end of the ancient era. So we're about halfway through our summary of ancient Egypt, but we have really finished the period of time that is traditionally referred to as ancient Egypt. The Old Kingdom, the Middle Kingdom and the New Kingdom. What can we say about ancient Egypt? The Egyptians certainly benefited from the flood water of the Nile, regularly providing fertility to the region and an abundance of agricultural produce, vital to those long-distance trade necessities needed to demonstrate the extravagant wealth of the kingdom. However, the Egyptians were absolutely dependent on the flood water of the Nile, so when the flood water didn't come as expected, internal pressures ensued. People would turn against their pharaoh, otherwise regarded as the nearest thing to a living deity when the going was good, but worthless when the going got tough. Egypt's geographic position must have been an advantage. The Berbers to the west were never any real threat to the lands of the Nile, and the Nubians were always a bit too dependent on the Egyptians for their wealth, being somewhat isolated from many other cultures. When the Egyptians were weak, the Nubians never made the most of capitalising on it. I think that we can sometimes do a disservice to those pre-classical cultures of the world. The papyri that has been recovered demonstrates advanced mathematical calculations and not isolated to Egypt. Similar artefacts were also discovered in Babylonia. These people had philosophers, mathematicians, historians and physicists that led to the classical age. And the proof of this has to be the construction of the pyramids, obelisks, sculptures and buildings. These were not the works of archaic humans. These were the works of modern Homo sapiens, people like us, with brains like us. We should not be surprised by their intelligence and abilities. By and large, the Egyptians were united by a long-standing belief system and it was not supplanted. Unlike Mesopotamia, where there were no powerful other cultures in a position to step in when the kingdom was weakened. Things like the pyramids served as a constant reminder of how great their collective ancestors were and cultures were trying to emulate their forefathers rather than eradicate them from knowledge. We see this in future attempts to construct pyramids by Middle Kingdom, New Kingdom and even Kushite Kingdom pharaohs. So that leads us to the future and all of this would be very interesting for those 1,000 years following the demise of the New Kingdom. Many greater powers than the world has ever seen before had started to emerge and Egypt was in no position to resist these powers. However, so Egyptianized were the people of Egypt that we see rulers ruling as pharaohs in order to continue Egyptian tradition, in order to earn the subservience of the population. After the New Kingdom We covered this last week, but we will skate over it again as we explore the remaining time that Egypt had pharaohs, what is referred to as Pharaonic Egypt. As the Egyptian kingdom crumbled apart, so did the Asiatic empires and kingdoms, so there was nobody from that area of the world who were in any position to take advantage. So it would be the African societies that would strengthen and threaten the lands of the Nile. Initially, it would be the Berbers of the ancient lands of Libya who were referred to as the Meshwesh. The Meshwesh would move into Lower Egypt 
and their ethnicity would remain part of the royal blood of the Delta Kingdoms for many centuries. The third intermediate period of Egypt followed the collapse of the New Kingdom in the middle of the 11th century. It would be during the 10th century that the Meshwesh would come and take control of Lower Egyptian lands and they would remain in control for the next two centuries. Upper Egypt would remain largely under the jurisdiction of the high priests of Amun based in Thebes as it had done since the collapse of the New Kingdom. While Egypt was able to exist to some degree in this fragmented condition, power was building in the Nubian lands and so would emerge the Kingdom of Kush. It would be during the 8th century BCE that the Kushites would make their move and establish themselves as the new pharaohs of Egypt, ruling as the 25th dynasty. It would not be long after this that the growing Assyrian Empire of the Asiatic lands would start showing an interest in the spoils of Egypt. This would create a three-way political situation where the Assyrians would stand in opposition of the Kushites and the Assyrians would support the Delta kings in resisting the Kushites who were stationed in the upper Egyptian city of Thebes. The Assyrian king, Esarhaddon, was able to capture the city of Memphis, running the Kushite king, Taharqa, back up the river to Thebes. Esarhaddon was unable to stay in Egypt with an empire to run, so he headed back to Assyria and left lower Egyptian rulers to run the kingdom as puppet pharaohs. Taharqa would return to Memphis, however, and this would prompt Esarhaddon's son, Ashurbanipal, to come back to Egypt and run the Kushites right the way out of Egypt properly. This time, the Assyrians would have to occupy Egypt until they were satisfied that the Kushite threat had gone. They even went so far as to sack Thebes altogether. The Assyrians would establish a dynasty of rulers in the Delta yet again, but once again the Assyrians could not stay in Egypt, and after they had gone back to Assyria, the Egyptians gradually started re-establishing their own control of Egypt, until such a time as Assyria became too busy defending their heartlands from other threats to be able to care about Egyptian politics any longer. The Assyrians may have been responsible for making ironworking, the primary metalworking in Egypt, supplanting bronze production, so the Assyrians had a modernising influence over the Egyptian people. The Late Period The Kushites had been expelled from Egypt and with Thebes sacked, they withdrew all the way back to Meroe, in the modern-day country of Sudan in the south. Greeks had started to establish colonies in Libyan lands to the west. In the east, the Assyrians had been destroyed by the Babylonians and the Medians, meaning an end to any influence over Egypt ever again. The cursive form of Egyptian hieroglyphs, meaning the way that Egyptians wrote in less formal everyday situations, started to develop into a script which is referred to as demotic. Animal cults started to become big business in Egypt, possibly as a reaction to the Egyptians wanting to re-establish their self-identity in the face of outside invasion, by harking back to the anthropomorphic deities that had carried them through the last few millennia. The Egyptians felt a new wave of confidence, and under Nico II, they would try to extend their territory into Asiatic lands once again by challenging the Babylonians. However, a new Asiatic power was emerging that was even stronger than the Babylonians, the Achaemenid Persians. When Apries became the Egyptian pharaoh in 589 BCE, things started to weaken in the Egyptian kingdom during a time when the Egyptians could little afford to become weak. Despite the fact that he was deposed, the Achaemenid Persians marched into Egypt under its ruler, Cambyses II, defeating Samtik III at the Battle of Pelusium and ending the Sayite dynasty in 525 
BCE. The Persians would not be as wasteful of their newfound territory as the Assyrians before them and it is perhaps while under the rule of Darius I that the completion of a canal linking the Red Sea to the River Nile made naval navigation from the Mediterranean Sea to the Red Sea possible. This would enable boats to travel from the lands of Western Europe and Africa all the way to the Persian Gulf and the Indus Valley without needing to circumnavigate the African continent, something which would have been treacherous and would have taken an unreasonable amount of time and energy. It does appear that small societies who lived on the banks of the Red Sea were prosperous during this period. The Egyptians were always looking to try and break away from Persian rule, however, and this continued into the 5th century BCE. Ultimately, it would be an Egyptian by the name of Amateus who would expel the Persians from Egypt, taking advantage of the fact that the Persians were infighting within their own royal family. The Egyptians were happy to be freed from the cruel treatment and high taxes of the Persians. However, Armateus was not favoured in the long term and was deposed and executed by an Egyptian called Nefarud in 398 BCE. Nefarud would become the first ruler of the 29th dynasty from its new capital at Mendes within the Nile Delta. The Persians were not happy with this situation and sought to get back into Egypt. The Egyptians would establish diplomatic links with anybody who was interested in showing a united front against the Persians. Egypt linked up with the Athenians and the Cypriots during the times of the 29th and 30th dynasties. But it was during an alliance with the Spartans that they caused the biggest problems to the Persians when they attacked their Phoenician cities. Ultimately though, it would be the Persians who would win out. In 343 BCE, the Persians, under the leadership of Artaxerxes III, would come back to Egypt under the leadership of Nactanebo II, and they would defeat them at the Battle of Pelusium. Not to be confused with the Battle of Pelusium in 525 BCE, which got the Persians involved in Egyptian occupation in the first place. The Achaemenid Persian 31st dynasty of Egypt would not last long though. A young man had become the king of the Greek kingdom of Macedon. His name was Alexander III and he would wage war against the Persians wherever he found them. In his successful aggression against the Persians, Alexander would free Egypt from Persian subjugation and ultimately defeat the Achaemenid Persians altogether. Ptolemaic Egypt Alexander is known to us as Alexander the Great. After the Persians left Egypt in 331 BCE, Alexander would proclaim himself the Pharaoh of Egypt. Alexander's obvious legacy is the establishment of the Mediterranean port city of Alexandria, which is one of Egypt's biggest cities today. However, after the death of Alexander in 323 BCE, his Macedonian Empire would disintegrate. Egypt was a part of his vast empire, and it was down to one of Alexander's most trusted companions, a man called Ptolemy, who would take control of the Egyptian lands, while the rest of Alexander's empire fell into the hands of others. This is regarded as the start of the Ptolemaic kingdom of Egypt. Along with Ptolemy came great advances in academia, so things were looking up for Egypt at long last. The Kushites had dwindled away since being run out of Egypt and back to the cities of Napata and Meroe a few hundred years previous. Now was the time for Egypt to be reborn and to be proud of itself once again. Ptolemy ruled Egypt as Pharaoh Ptolemy I and during his reign he would commission the lighthouse of Alexandria 
a limestone structure which stood over a hundred metres tall and had a huge furnace blazing away at the top of the structure that could be seen for many miles around. So spectacular was the construction that it would become one of the seven wonders of the world, along with the Great Pyramid of Giza. Ptolemy is also accredited by some for being the one who commissioned the construction of the Museum in Alexandria, which contained a great library that was one of the envies of the classical world. And this is speculated to be where the Greek mathematician Euclid would write his treatise of books called Elements, and that would tackle geometric issues. This would be just the beginning of many great scholarly achievements of the new city and the new regime. Alexandria is also a place of innovative engineering inventions such as pneumatics. Another Greek mathematician called Tasebius would identify the power of compressed air and would use his physical abilities to devise a type of water pump that would use this power to create water jets that could be good for fighting fire. We don't really know whether Ptolemy I was directly responsible for the construction of the library. He may have just devised the plans for its construction, or it could have been the work of his son, Ptolemy Philadelphus, who would reign as Pharaoh Ptolemy II. In Ptolemy I's old age, he would have Ptolemy II as his co-regent. Ptolemy I would not live long enough to witness the start of the Syrian wars which were waged between the Ptolemaic kingdom of Egypt under Ptolemy II and the Seleucid Empire which was the part of Alexander the Great's Macedonian Empire which covers the Near Eastern Persia. These wars would take place for a period of over a hundred years starting with the First Syrian War and concluding with the Sixth Syrian War, all between the years of 274 and 168 BCE. Here we can once again see the lands of the Levant being battled over between the Egyptians and the Asiatics. At one point we see Ptolemy IV crush the Seleucids at the Battle of Raphia in 217 BCE, only for the Seleucid ruler Antiochus III to come back and take Judea from the Ptolemies in 200 BCE. All of this constant battling was taking its toll on the resources of both kingdoms, despite the fact that new trade routes were starting to emerge with the societies of the Far East and with the emergence of the Silk Road in the 2nd century BCE. Both the Seleucids and Ptolemaic Egypt descended into civil unrest towards the end of the 2nd century BCE. In 107 BCE, Ptolemy IX was deposed by his brother, Ptolemy X, with the assistance of their mother, Cleopatra III. Now, this is where Egyptian history can become extremely confusing, as pretty much all the kings are called Ptolemy and all the queens are called Cleopatra. While Ptolemy IX was in exile in Cyprus, it is believed that he became involved in the Seleucid Civil War, once again between two brothers called Antiochus VIII and Antiochus IX. Their mother was called Cleopatra Thea, and Cleopatra Thea was the sister of Cleopatra III, making the Ptolemies the cousins of the Antiochuses. You'd think that being family and having the might of the Romans to the west and the Parthians to the east would make them all get their act together. Ptolemy IX would return in 88 BCE to rule over Egypt until his death in 81 BCE. One of Ptolemy IX's sons, possibly illegitimate, came to rule Egypt as Ptolemy XII in the year 80 BCE. Ptolemy XII would establish a political alliance with the Roman Republic during his reign and this would turn out to be significant in Egyptian history. It might have been that Ptolemy XII felt he had little choice other than to bow his head to Rome as his predecessor Ptolemy XI had left his throne to Rome 
in his will. Ptolemy XI was disposed and executed by his own subjects, and this is why Ptolemy XII had got his chance to be the pharaoh in the first place. However, when the Romans conquered Cyprus in 58 BCE and indirectly killed their ruler, Ptolemy XII's own brother, Ptolemy XII did absolutely nothing. The people of Egypt took this as an excellent excuse to revolt against their leader, who they were a bit fed up with anyway due to his high taxation. And Ptolemy XII was forced to flee the kingdom along with his 11-year-old daughter. Remember her, please. While in Roman territory, Ptolemy and his daughter would be granted refuge by his Roman ally, Pompey. Ptolemy would appeal to the Romans to help him to be reinstated as the pharaoh of Egypt, as without him, they would not receive their expected tribute. The Romans were uncomfortable with invading Egypt, so Ptolemy would have to approach one of Pompey's supporters and a Roman general called Aulus Gabinius to invade and conquer the Egyptian royal palace and have Ptolemy XII reinstated. Ultimately, in 51 BCE, four years after his reinstatement, Ptolemy XII died, and the throne was passed to his son, who reigned as Ptolemy XIII. One of the first things that Ptolemy XIII did was marry his own sister, in the time-honoured Egyptian tradition, of course. His sister-wife would also be his co-regent, Cleopatra VII, This is the famous Cleopatra and that same 11-year-old girl that went with her exiled father to Rome. I did tell you to remember her. Ptolemy and Cleopatra did not get on well. Cleopatra seemed insistent upon playing the lead role and Ptolemy was not prepared to do this. In the meantime, Pompey was involved in a Roman civil war with the politician Julius Caesar. After a humiliating defeat, Pompey fled to Egypt to cash in on the support given to Ptolemy XIII and Cleopatra's father years before. Ptolemy feared that by supporting Pompey, he would incur the wrath of Caesar, and so he arranged for Pompey to be assassinated on his arrival. When Caesar later arrived in Egypt, he was horrified to discover that Pompey had been murdered, a death unbefitting of a former ally and a respected opponent. Caesar would align himself with Cleopatra and engage in a military campaign against Ptolemy, successfully laying siege to Alexandria and possibly destroying the historic library in the process. Ptolemy was defeated and reportedly died while fleeing Alexandria. Caesar and Cleopatra would consummate their alliance and Cleopatra would have a child by Caesar named Caesarian and likely to be intended to rule both Rome and Egypt. However, after Caesar died, Caesarian was overlooked and Caesar's nephew Octavian was favoured. Octavian would initially have the support of a Roman general called Mark Antony. Antony would be asked to look after Rome's eastern provinces, of which Ptolemaic Egypt was now considered to belong to. However, Octavian and Antony fell out, and Antony decided to form an alliance with Cleopatra of Egypt. Once again, this alliance would be consummated and Cleopatra would have three children by Mark Antony. It seemed that maybe Mark Antony saw himself as more than just an assistant to the ruler of Rome. Ultimately, this would lead to a battle and in 31 BCE, Octavian would defeat the combined armies of Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Things were very grim indeed for the Ptolemaic royal dynasty now. Mark Antony and Cleopatra 
both famously committed suicide. Cleopatra's four children were now in the possession of Octavian. Caesarian was apparently strangled in Alexandria at Octavian's request. Cleopatra's two sons by Mark Antony, Alexander Helios and Ptolemy Philadelphus, were paraded as trophies of victory in Rome alongside their sister, Cleopatra Selina II. The two sons were never heard of again. Cleopatra Selina was the only survivor of the Ptolemaic dynasty and she was married to a man named Juba and they were sent to govern a Roman province in northwest Africa called Mauritania. Egypt was now a province of the newly formed Roman Empire under its emperor Augustus, previously known to us as Octavian. The Pharaonic period of Egypt, which dated back to before 3000 BCE, was now over. Now of course, these stories deserve a whole lot more than just a gloss over at the end of a podcast episode. Volume 3 will cover the classical world and we will start with a look at the emerging cultures of Persia. We'll be taking a good close look at the emergence of Alexander the Great and his incredible exploits along with the Hellenistic states that he left behind after his death, such as the Seleucids. We'll also be taking a closer look at Julius Caesar and the Battle of Actium, as well as Cleopatra. However, we do need to complete the story of the ancient world, so we'll leave ancient Egypt behind and look to the rest of the world, including the Americas, the Far East, the Indus Valley, and Europe. Our first stop, however, will be to take a closer look at one of the most important innovations of the ancient world. The emergence of writing. Thank you so much, as ever, for listening to this week's episode, and that concludes our look at ancient Egypt. The nine episode um, look at ancient Egypt now concluded, and we can move on. Don't worry, there are aspects of ancient Egypt which we'll skip back to and certainly next week when we look at writing, Egyptian hieroglyphs are very, very important to that part of the story. So we'll be dipping our head into Egypt once or twice again. If you want to support the podcast, we're always grateful of a bit of support to cover the costs of producing the podcast. Please go to the Patreon page, which you can link to through the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website. And uh, if you want to make a monthly donation, that would be hugely appreciated. There are rewards and benefits available to those who do. And I'm proud to announce the introduction of a new patron, Eric G. Young, who has joined the Patreon campaign for funding the podcast. And uh, thank you very much, Eric, and welcome aboard. Now, um, if you cannot afford to donate anything to the podcast, which I completely understand, then don't worry, there are other ways that you can help. If you listen through a podcast platform, then be sure to rate and review the podcast. That is equally valuable because it exposes the product to more and more listeners. The more that you rate the podcast, the higher it appears in the in the charts for that podcast forum and more people get to see the history of the podcast it, it raises the brand awareness so i can't tell you how important that is so if you don't want to make a financial contribution it's fine don't worry just make sure that you do rate and review us there is a new history of the world podcast video on youtube now currently and if you go to the volume two section of our website there is a link uh, next to the uh, episode nine on the phoenicians uh, where uh, nick Barksdale of the study of antiquity in the Middle Ages has constructed a video that helps to support the information within the podcast so it's well worth a look give it a thumbs up make a comment beneath and enjoy Nick's work that he's done to support the podcast now when the podcast ends that's not it for another week now we now have a discussion forum you can find it by going to the website the history of the world podcast.com website and going to the interact section and clicking on the discussion forum. Many of the listeners will be 
poking their head in there from time to time. And if you join the forum, you can join in the debates and the questions and even set your own questions. We can discuss history till the cows come home. So go there now directly, sign up and become a part of the History of the World podcast discussion forum. And let's make this a seven day a week thing. There are already plenty of discussions existing on the forum at the moment that you can choose to get involved in. Okay, big thank you then to Anthony Tassanari, who recommended us on the Facebook page. He stated, an amazing chronological study of early history thus far. I enjoy waiting a couple of weeks and binging a group of podcasts in a day. Thank you. Well, thank you, Anthony. That's a very kind recommendation and that always helps the podcast to flourish. So thank you very much. And now this week I was fortunate enough to be contacted by a group called The History Project and they are based in a town called Deal, uh, which some of you may know uh, from the English county of Kent. Now, what these two gentlemen do um, is they go around teaching children about history which is wonderful and uh, what I've uh, what I'd like to do is just like to bring their product to your attention just because it's the kind of thing that we're all into is the promotion of history and, and in any form or way shape or form whatsoever now these gentlemen do this at expense to themselves just because they're passionate about history so they they don't really make a lot of money out of it obviously they take their product round to schools at their own expense just purely out of passion for teaching history so what I'd like you to do is when you get an opportunity um, to have a look at their work and just support them, give them a thumbs up and you know, give them any kind of encouragement or support that you wish to give them. It's, uh, it's the kind of thing that we want to teach our children about history. It gives them more of a perspective on, on a lot of things. So it really is something that they should be introduced to at a young age. So I wholeheartedly support everything that the History Project is doing. What I shall do, I shall post a couple of links on the on the Facebook page and uh, maybe you can spare a couple of minutes just to go and have a look at their work. Now I received a message from Tama Hartley who said um, that the episode 19, last week's episode, was an enjoyable and fascinating listen. Thanks for sharing. And uh, then she went on to say, um, I was especially interested in the Harim conspiracy, uh, you might call it the harem conspiracy in America, um, I call it the Harim Conspiracy. Um, I have a wonderful book written by Susan Redford in 2002. Unfortunately, some of the info is now out of date, but it's still a great read on the topic, the Harim Conspiracy, the murder of Ramesses III. I've not uh, come across that book, and uh, but it does sound like an interesting read. The whole story of the Harim Conspiracy is wonderful, and uh, it should be made into a film, in my opinion. But thanks ever so much for getting in touch, Tom Hartley. A couple more shout-outs. Thank you very much to Tom Blair from the Myth Podcast. And he got in touch this week. uh, I'll be speaking with him over the next few days, I'm sure, once again. Check out his work. It's called the Myth Podcast. Uh, Jacob Riley got in touch with the podcast, said, Hi, Chris, will the podcast cover any topics related to the Americas, such as the Mayan, Aztec or Inca cultures? or anything else about the native pre-Columbian peoples. I am finding the podcast fascinating and well-paced, and your accent is a nice change of pace from what I hear day to day. Thank you for the podcast, and I hope to keep listening to you for years to come. Yes, um, of course, um, we will be covering the Americas. Um, Generally speaking, there isn't a lot that we can say about the Americans, um, or, or the Americas, I should say, uh, dating to this period where all this ancient Greek and ancient Egyptian and Near East stuff is going on, uh, mainly due to the fact that we don't really have a lot of artefacts and written uh, evidence of anything actually going on. Although there was stuff going on, it will be covered and uh, there will be two or three podcasts about am- uh, Native Americans of this period and that will be coming up towards the end of this volume. This volume will be around about 40 episodes long and, and the American episodes should be 
around about 36, 35, 36, 37, something like that. So um, what I would also suggest with the Mayan, Aztec and Inca cultures, I believe that they will be a part of Volume 4. So we're quite a way off from them at the moment, but they will very much be a part of the plans for the podcast. Don't worry about that. Thank you for getting in touch, Jacob. Now, Joel McKinnon has been uh, very kind enough to get back to me after I've been reaching out to him with outstretched arms for the last couple of weeks, pleading with him to let me publish his song. I I didn't think he'd mind me doing it um, so much as um, he, you know, I I did want to get permission first just because I'm I'm a nice guy. Um, Joel McKinnon is partially responsible uh, as a band member of Jupiter Sheep. I actually think he's got an alias, so I've probably given, given his sort of his... He's the game away as to who he is in real life. But he's a member of Jupiter's Sheep. And they wrote a song about the Battle of Megiddo. Uh, lyrics lit- written by Byron Bellamy. And uh, cracking lyrics such as, He's coming from the south like a pharaoh man should. And the Megiddo boys are going to chop him up good. Uh, which is my particular favourite line. And uh, it's basically from the perspective of those kings of Megiddo who are anticipating the arrival of Thutmose III to come and give them a good whooping and uh, how they're going to be all defiant and everything. So I strongly recommend you listen to the song. I'm going to post it on the Facebook page so you can go and have a listen to it. Um, It's a good one. Please listen to it. And thank you very much, Joel, for getting back to me and letting me know. Um, Well, look, that's about it for another week now. Next week, we're going to be venturing into new territory. We're going to be talking of the emergence of writing, the story of writing, and it's going to be in two parts. And if you like little bits, tidbits of information and tying the past um, together with the current, you are going to love the next two episodes, trust me. Um, But be sure to join me then. I'm going to wrap up now. I've been talking for far too long. This is the longest episode ever. Have a great week, everybody, and thank you so much for listening. The History of the World podcast is available on many different podcast platforms. So please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us. Visit our website at historyofthewordpodcast.com and email us at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the support the podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr.